Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another online Power Planners Assembly. If you haven't done it yet, uh, there's a button towards the top of the screen, I think, where you can follow us here on Crowdcast. Um, if you could do that, that'd be great. We can let you know what we're doing here, where we're going live, and all those kind of things. Um, if it's your first assembly, it's great to have you along. These are very relaxed and interactive. Um, there is a chat window on the right-hand side of your screen, which is quite active at the moment, which is good. You can ask questions inside there. You can answer other people's questions. You can put comments in there, whatever you like. Um, and I'll monitor those and bring them up as we go. Just to check the chat is working for everybody. It's such a beautiful day. Pop in there what your favorite ice cream is. Uh, be interested to see what that is. Um, this is being recorded and a replay is going to be made available afterwards if you want to watch it again. Um, or if you're watching in the future, hello from the past. And we've also started producing a podcast for each of our assemblies. So you can download and listen on the go if that's your preference. Now, last week, if you were watching, um, we had rather an abrupt ending to our assembly. Uh, and there was a few gremlins in the works there. So at the end of today, I'm going to sit here looking a bit stupid, uh, being quiet, um, just so we can actually extend the recording a bit longer. And hopefully that means that I don't get cut off on my prime. So if you want to hang around and laugh at me looking like a lemon, that's absolutely fine. Um, but I'll let you know when I'm about to do that. Um, so we'll see how that one goes. Don't forget, we've got some events coming up in the future. Uh, the Big Day Out and Big Night In are booking now. That's the 14th of September and the 13th of September. We will pop a link in the chat room on the website. Uh, we've sold more than half the tickets on that already, and there's still quite a few months to go. So if you'd like to come along and join about 100 power planners, having a great time learning and fixing and sharing things, then book there. And you can book well in advance for the assembly in the middle in Warwick, uh, which is happening in November. Um, so links will be in the website, sorry, in the chat room about those very soon. So ice cream, um, Mr. Whippy, 99. Yes, pistachio, fudge brownie on there, Samuel. That's a good one. Um, <laughs> Filippo, yep, good choice there. A hooded skull, what's that, Simon? Never heard of that. Um, well, I've learned something new every day. Right. Away from um, ice cream onto today's event. So um, for the last few years, MG Wealth has worked with us here at the Assembly to put together a series of events designed just for us parapanners. And it's a massive thanks from us to them for their continued support of the Assembly this year. And I'm really pleased that this is uh, the third of five events coming your way. And this one is catchily entitled, Do Tax Rappers Go to Heaven? So death is a part of life and comes to us all eventually. And it's a time when parapanners can really um, help you know, clients, friends and family avoid unnecessary distress and worry. It really is one of those moments of truth when we can come into our own. So there is a poll I've set up on the right hand side of your screen. You'll see a little kind of bar chart inside there is a poll. It's a simple question. Have you dealt with a client's death claim before or not? It'd be great if you could pop in there and vote so we can see what kind of experience people have got on this so far. So today we're going to be looking at how tax works on death, how the money is distributed, who needs to do what to make it happen, and all those kind of things. And I'm very pleased to be joined by another expert from Energy Wealth's technical team, and that's Barry Dawson. Now, you can't see Barry at the moment because Barry's laptop is struggling in the heat and his camera's decided not to work. Um, so um, Barry's here in sound, though. Yeah. So Barry, for those who don't know you, yeah, please introduce yourself. Yep. Hi, guys. I'm very sorry about uh, my camera not working. It's a a very strange occurrence in Scotland that um, it's that hot that my it would appear my Surface Pro heat sink has turned my camera off, but um, I can't complain. <laughs> it's been 25 degrees in Scotland for a change. I'd even put a shirt on for today, so 
it might come on. It did come on at one point when I was doing a WebEx this morning, but then it went off again. So um, you never know. You might get to see me you know, on screen at some point, hopefully. Yeah, so I've kept a little um, blank sort of camera space in the left-hand corner for you, Barry, just in case your camera comes on. And Rob's got yeah, a great sure. idea. Give it a nice screen. Just, just give you a <laughs> laptop a nice screen. Uh, I, I do way. wonder what that hooded skull is. That sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I've put a picture of Barry up on the screen there. So if you haven't met Barry before, that's that's his handsomeness there up yeah, on the thanks. screen. So <laughs> Barry's put some slides together for us. Um, and I'm going to hand over to Barry now, who's going to take us through them. Yeah, afternoon, everybody. Um, so uh, obviously, uh, Richard's covered the sort, of, the sort of main objectives, but the, 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 really, by the end of the session, hopefully, you'll be able to describe the, the tax and distribution aspects on death of individuals holding OICs, uh, pension death benefits, individual savings accounts, and then insurance bonds individually owned, but also uh, when held in trust as well. So, um, on to the next slide, Richard. So we're going to start off with OICs first. So first of all, if, if your OICs held in joint names, it will continue to be held by the surviving shareholder. And, and I'll talk a little bit about that in due course. Uh, but what about single owner cases? There's a reference on this slide to uplift on death and gains die with the owner. But what does that actually mean? Well, it means that death itself doesn't give rise to a capital gains tax charge Instead, the assets are deemed to have been acquired by the, the personal reps um, for the market value at the date of death. So that, that's commonly known as the, the CGT uplift. Uh, the person who inherits asset benefits um, because the base cost of each asset is basically deemed for CGT purposes to be the, the market value of that asset at the date of death. And accordingly, any gains which have accrued or, or even a loss, uh, which was not realised by the, the deceased is, is wiped out. Um, responsibility for, for dealing with the tax affairs of the estate that lies with the personal reps. And tax-wise, we need to think about the capital gains tax and income tax position. Um, so if we move on to the next slide. Um, in this slide, I'm, what I'm trying to do here really is just drill down into the sort of capital gains tax aspect. So starting with the selling of the holding, you know, if the personal rep liquidates the like shares, so that they can give cash to the estate beneficiaries. That's obviously going to be a disposal uh, for CGT purposes. Any gain uh, will reflect the growth in that uh, period since the date of death. So the personal reps, they're typically... Oh, sorry, give me a second. Les is trying to call me. Uh, <laughs> just need to switch that off. Um, so, yeah, basically any gain is going to reflect uh, the growth in that period. So that the personal reps, they'll typically have that sort of annual... CGT exemption for the period of administration, and that applies in the tax year of death, uh, but also up to a further two years if you've maybe got a, a more complicated estate that you're dealing with. So modest gains can pretty much be sheltered by three years' worth of annual exemptions. But as you'll know from the, the spring, uh, uh, autumn statement last year, I should say that obviously the annual exempt amount is, is only 6000 next year. And then as you move into next tax year, it's going to be as low as 3000 So um, if it's a big portfolio, you might still see some CGT getting paid within that uh, uh, scenario. Um, you might be wondering what the uh, IST loss relief is in this slide. In simple terms, IST relief allows for the sale uh, price of shares sold within 12 months of death to be distributed, or sorry, I should say substituted uh, for, for their date of death values. 
And if that value uh, is lower uh, and applies for IST purposes, then that value will also apply when you're establishing your, your CGT base cost. Um, and if there's any chargeable gains, they're obviously going to be taxed at 20%. Um, now I want to sort of transfer of ownership in the middle of the slide here. So rather than selling the shares, the personal reps might transfer the shares to the beneficiary, and that won't be a disposal for CGT purposes. Um, the advantage of that option is that the beneficiary can then decide when to in cash. And if there's more than one beneficiary, obviously they're going to have their, their own uh, CGT annual exempt amount. So that, that can be handy for complicated estates, which have maybe dragged on for some time and gains have accrued during that administration period. And obviously if there's more um, beneficiaries there, as I just said about this um, um, autumn statement, you know, the fact that the annual exempt amount is going to be lower, it'll be better if it can actually be spread, those gains spread across multiple beneficiaries and they can use their annual exempt amount. And incidentally, the, the, the acquisition cost for those disposals will be the, the value at the date of death. Uh, and the last point in this slide is that as we learned in the last slide, if the shares are actually held jointly, then ownership will continue to be held by the, the surviving shareholder. Now, the surviving owner's CGT acquisition cost, that would need to be adjusted to take into account their inherited share. So half the acquisition cost would be 50% of the original investment, and then half would be the 50% of the value at the, the date of death. Uh, so that's that slide. Um, if you move on to the next one, Richard. I've got a question coming, Barry, if yeah, you can. Sure. Um, can the personal representative sell a holding in a GIA before probate's been granted? No. Well, I say no in general terms. It really depends on the provider's um, sort of claim process. So although probate's not necessarily required in some instances to administer the state, whether probate will be required to actually receive or claim, I should say, the investment will depend on the institution's um, sort of bereavement process. So most providers will probably have a simplified bereavement process where it's essentially a risk-based decision by the provider. So it might be generally, you know, if investment holdings £20,000 or less, it's a relatively common sort of threshold the investment provider might be willing to take the risk of dealing with that person who's claiming to be the personal representative and pay the claim to them directly. Uh, but for larger cases, they're most likely going to require probate. And, and, and that's because probate or letters of administration, if there's uh, no will or letters of confirmation in Scotland, if, uh, if you're dealing with a Scottish case, um, they, you know, if you have that, then that's confirming that they are the person who's legally applied to administer the estate and essentially that's what the investment provider will want just to be sure that because if they pay it out to the person that's claiming initially and then somebody else comes along at a later date and has proof that they are the legal personal rep the provider would be liable to pay the claim a second time and then try to claim the money back for that last person so yeah in theory it's possible but probably only likely if it's a small claim value Okay, yep. brilliant. Uh, Rob's, Rob sent a question as well, which I've just popped up mm -hmm. on the screen. And I, I'm going to be brave and try and answer this one. So he said, what about transfer of ownership for a GIA held in trust? And my answer, and Barry, please jump in and correct me because I'm about to be wrong on this. Um, my answer would be the fact it's held in trust, the death of somebody doesn't really matter because it's held in trust. Um, yeah, now, have yeah. I got that wrong, Barry? Or? 
No, no, you're right, because obviously the trustee are the legal owners, so there, there's not anything like a life assured. There's no event uh, on that, that scenario, so the, 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 the trustees will still hold that. They may at that point be looking to distribute. You know, it might have been the settler that's um, passed away, and therefore it's the... Uh, they might at that point, depending on the, the terms of the trust, be looking to transfer ownership over to a trust beneficiary. Now, say that's a discretionary trust, um, that's where you'd maybe be looking to use holdover relief because you, you may want to, you know, basically kick the can down the road as far as the CTT position is concerned. So they, they may want to transfer ownership at that point. It would be a disposal unless holdover relief has, has been claimed. Yeah, brilliant. And um, Maria's brought up a point which uh, we actually had a question sent in about this beforehand. You might not be able to comment on this, Barry, but uh, I know that some um, providers, I know that Transact and Fidelity do this, where the personal reps can actually use some of the money in the account to pay the IHT before probate's been granted. I'm not sure if, if MG or Proof can do that, but I haven't done it with, with um, them before. But, yeah, um, it's interesting to say there's other providers do that because you actually need uh, an agreement in place with HMRC to be able to do that. Um, I, I know for, well, Certainly, from a prudential, excuse me, prudential perspective, we don't have that facility. That facility usually only applies to banks, um, where they'll give uh, take money from a, an account uh, to settle the IST liability, and then obviously that gets the, the ball rolling as far as because you'll not get probate until your IST bills paid. Yeah. So, usually, you normally need to take a, a, a short-term loan to pay that IST yeah. liability. But perhaps I, I can't say for certain why the other. Uh, so sort of transact would be doing that, but maybe they're taking a risk-based approach, perhaps rather than um, following the sort of actual process. Which, as far as I'm aware, it is only banks that have that agreement with HMRC. Yeah, I think it is done on a risk-based process. I think that only really yeah, works if I've, you've got real liquidity yeah. problems in this thing. Yeah, I, I certainly have seen concession requests come through us asking whether they could do that, um, and the answer is well. That would be a business decision. It's not a technical decision as such um, uh, uh, to whether they do that or not. Um, like I say, going back to the sort of probate question, if we were to do that and somebody else comes along who is the actual appointed for probate, then we might have double claims to pay. So it can be messy, but I can understand why they would want to do that. I think from a planning point of view there, it's probably maybe not so much with the GIAs, but maybe with the bonds, certainly, if the, uh, uh, certainly the use of trusts. Um, obviously, there's a probate by a by probate planning as a byproduct of pretty much all the trust. Well, all the trust that you'll get from a bond provider. It is a probate trust, obviously, but you generally wouldn't be using a probate trust if you had an IXD problem. But uh, mm. yeah, think about trusts and think about that for elderly clients as well, because it, it is a problem uh, if they've got most of their money tied up in, in investment structures. Um, paying the IXD bill can be problematic. Uh, so yeah, well, um, is any more questions or that? Is that yeah, no, no, that's on, yeah, I'll, so, I'll save some for later. Yeah. <laughs> so we've uh, looked at the sort of capital gains tax aspect, but on this slide, what about income tax? So uh, first of all, your personal reps have no personal allowance, savings allowance, or, or dividend nil rate. So the, the income received during the administration period, that's going to be taxable at basic rate. So 20% on interest and, and rents, 8.75% uh, on dividends. Um, since the state's not entitled to the, the, the personal allowance, um, all the income is going to be taxable unless it's maybe you know specifically exempt. You know, that would be 
know, example would be something like winnings from premium bonds. Uh, but lastly, on this slide, uh, in terms of reporting, uh, when the state income is paid to the beneficiaries, then the personal rep must provide the beneficiary with a form R185 showing the income paid to the beneficiary during that specific tax year and also the income tax already paid by the personal reps on that income. And then when income is passed to the beneficiary, it then might be subject to tax at higher rates uh, or you know, if, if they're paid tax at a lower rate, the beneficiary uh, will be able to reclaim some of that tax paid uh, by the executors. It just really depends on the, the tax position of the beneficiary. Um, so that's it. Oikes, um, on to pensions. So over the next few slides, I'll be touching on taxation, but mainly the, the, sort of the distribution of pension death benefits. So um, in terms of taxation, um, I know Les covered the sort of spring budget changes to LTA in quite some detail in the session that he held for you. I think it was at the, just at the tail end of um, April. If I remember correctly, so I'm not going to repeat it all today, but I'm aware that the recording still on the, the, the Parapan Assembly uh, website to watch if you didn't actually catch that. But I still think it's important just to have a quick recap anyway, which is why I've got this slide up here. So looking back, I guess, firstly to 22-23, if a member died under 75 with an LTA excess, which is taken as, as a lump sum, it would have incurred a 55% LTA charge. So let's say that was £100,000 above the LTA, there would be a, a £55,000 tax charge uh, due to HMRC and, and there would be no further income tax liability. And, and with that option, obviously, the funds are, are no longer in the pension environment. If the beneficiary directed the excess to, say, dependent or nominee drawdown or, or annuity, the LTA charge would have been 25%, but you know any income then subsequently taken from drawdown or any annuity income would be paid income tax-free to the beneficiary. Now, that all changed, obviously, uh, in the spring statement. So the, the position for this tax year is the LTA charge has been set at zero. Um, that means if the beneficiary, uh, death benefit sorry, is, is taken as a lump sum, uh, there won't be an LTA charge, uh, but it would be taxed at the beneficiary's marginal rate. So for you know large death benefit values, that could obviously mean the beneficiaries getting pushed into the additional rate bundle or higher rate band, certainly, depending on their, their tax position. But, you know, if, if the beneficiary was to designate to drawdown, if you can go back just again uh, a second, Richard, Sorry, just, that's again, right? yeah, no problems. Uh, if they designated to drawdown or purchased an annuity, uh, there wouldn't be an LTA charge because it's set at zero, uh, and obviously there would be no income tax uh, payable on that drawdown or, or uh, income or annuity income. So broadly, it's a no-brainer from a tax perspective, planning perspective, that the beneficiary should select income route over a lump sum. I'm saying broadly because, you know, if the beneficiary is a non-taxpayer and the death benefit sum is low and it's, you know, within their personal allowance, then that, that, that lump sum could still be uh, coming out uh, tax-free. But again, it just depends on the circumstances. But yeah. Um, yeah, next slide, uh, Richard. Uh, so in terms of distribution of death benefits, you know, in the post-pension freedom world, it's, it's now possible for non-dependents to inherit drawdown funds. So it means on death of the member, it's possible for the death benefit to be used to, to set up dependent or nominee drawdown arrangements. Uh, then on subsequent death, the, the nominee or, or the dependent uh, can then, you know, keep the money in the pension environment and pass it down to successor uh, and, and so on. If there's, you know, funds left uh, on the successor's death, 
they can also pass the funds on uh, further down the line. So until the funds are exhausted. So that ability to, um, you just clicked ahead there, but <laughs> I'll right. go back if that's okay. But, you know, that, that, that's so a key part of planning. No, that's fine. Uh, I don't know why the controls aren't shown for me, but uh, obviously that ability to pass on through the generations is one of the key benefits of pensions freedom. Um, but another key point uh, from a planning point of view is that the member effectively loses control over who subsequently benefits after their death as it's going to be up to the, 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 the you know the dependent and the nominee or, or successor after them to decide who benefits so you know when you are discussing that with clients you know the death benefit distribution is important to understand particularly if the member wants control you know it might be that their spouse uh, they want their spouse to benefit uh, for their, the the death benefits when they die but then when their the spouse dies they want the funds to go to their children from a, a previous marriage and, and that's just on the next slide or, or the, the line that's coming up here. If they want that uh, level of control, they're only going to be able to achieve that using a bypass trust and then appointing trustees uh, that they trust to manage the funds in accordance with their wishes. The, the downside, obviously, the bypass trust is that the pensions, uh, those funds are going to come out of the pension environment and, and, and you know the tax planning advantages of a pension wrapper won't be there. Uh, although you know, they might be able to replicate that in an offshore bond, depending on, you know, certainly from a journey point of view, investment journey point of view, but whether or not the exit point of view would be the same would really depend on the beneficiary circumstances. So if they're non-taxpayers, you might still be able to achieve that kind of tax nirvana, as Les often calls it, you know, tax-efficient journey, tax-efficient exit. But that, that is an important consideration in terms of, of control. Um, if you go on to the next slide, Richard, um, so although post-pension freedom, the law allows full flexibility of death benefits, such as nominee drawdown, that is conditional on the scheme rules allowing full flexibility. Um, so it really is a case of checking the scheme rules, because if the scheme doesn't allow flexibility, then you've obviously got an issue if the, the member wants to you know, pass their pension death benefits through dependent nominee successor drawdown. So that that's a really important thing to check when you're looking at the death benefit distribution. Uh, you what the member wants and what the scheme will actually allow. And if those two aren't actually going to be compatible, uh, then a decision might need to be made about you know, maybe transferring to a, a pension scheme that um, offers the death benefit distribution that the, 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 the client wants. Um, now, once you've considered the scheme rules, what actually happens um, well, if the scheme doesn't have any discretion because it's a binding nomination um, or, or that you know the plan terms actually dictate who it goes to then you basically skip the middle square in this slide and, and the money from the pension will go straight uh, to the beneficiaries nominated or to the state so obviously again that's an important thing to understand if it's a binding nomination when discussing your, your death benefit options if the scheme does have discretion on who benefits um, uh, or who, can, who they can be paid to, then it's effectively up to the scheme to do a, a gathering information exercise uh, to decide who will benefit, which is the, the middle part of this slide here. You know, for most cases, the scheme will be, you know, they'll abide by the member's nomination, but they still need to gather information before making a decision because it, it might be that the member's nomination was made several years before death you know the circumstances might have changed in between times you know they've never updated their nomination or, or letter of wishes so 
you know, they might have nominated their, um, their their wife to benefit, but they've split from their wife, but not actually divorced. There might be you know, minor children that the funds would be better being applied for. So they still have to consider that um, before making a decision. And another key point, if I could just move the slide on one, uh, is that it's not possible to transfer a death benefit. We're often asked this question through our, our technical help desk. So this is going back. Um, Get the head, it's uh, uh, one there. But basically, the first one that came up there, uh, you can't transfer the death benefit. So, um, but what I would say is, it, it's you know, it, although the scheme doesn't offer uh, the, these death benefit options, um, they they might be off, willing to offer um, what's called um, or, or what we call effectively blink of an eye drawdown. So even though the scheme uh, may not offer the benefits that are available. Uh, the the Taxation and Pensions Act 2014 that introduced a, a, a statutory permissive override into Finance Act 2004, and that legislation effectively allows the scheme to offer the new rules so that all flexible options are, are available. Uh, the, the key point, though, is the scheme doesn't have to use these powers, uh, but some schemes are actually prepared to to use these powers, you know, if the beneficiary really wants drawdown, they might be prepared to uh, immediately transfer it or certainly treat it as drawdown money. And that then allows the, uh, the, the beneficiary to do a drawdown to drawdown uh, transfer. That, that That's, as I said, what's known as, as, as blink of an eye drawdown. Um, so that, that is a, an important thing to check um, when you're thinking about the death benefits. If it's not there, double check with them because that might also mean that you don't necessarily need to transfer uh, to get the death benefits that, that, that uh, the member wants if they're willing to do a blink of an eye, an eye drawdown. Although in saying that, there, there might obviously be other reasons to consider a transfer, uh, not just the death benefits. Um, that's so, a really good uh, example, isn't it? About you've, yeah. you've got the revenue rules on top, and then you've got the scheme rules underneath it, and not all yeah. schemes have to do everything the revenue says you can do. Exactly. Even things like, uh, you know, small pots, uh, off, off track here, obviously, but small pots, it's, uh, schemes can do them, but if the scheme rules don't allow it, um, then it's not going to be available. It's a, a key phrase we use in the team quite a lot is scheme rules rule. So, yeah, uh, it's a, a very important factor in the sort of decision process. So, in terms of who can get what, um, you know, the type of death benefits you can receive, lump sum or income option, that's really going to depend on the nominations that are in place. And and in this slide, we're just going to consider, you know, a scheme that has discretion over payment of the death benefits, which is is pretty common for for most modern um, uh, trusts that are, are, are for retail clients at the moment. Um, essentially, it's going to come down to whether there's a dependent and and is there a nomination. So looking at the top row here. First, if there is a dependent and, and there has been a nomination, the scheme can give un income options to the dependent or the nominee. However, they can pay a lump sum to anyone. Uh, the next row down, if there are no dependents and there is a nomination, the scheme can only give income options uh, to the nominee, but they can give a, a lump sum to anyone. Uh, and the third row down, if there is a dependent uh, but no nomination, the scheme can only give income options to the dependent again, lump sum to anyone. But the, the last one, uh, which quite often can be the case, uh, if, if there's no dependent and no, no nomination, then the scheme can provide income and lump, so, uh, lump sum options to, to anyone. Um, pensions and IHT. So pensions obviously are generally IHT efficient, but you need to be mindful 
that there's instances where it can um, can apply and does apply. Uh, so starting at the bottom left circle there, um, if the member has a power of disposal, which is where the member has a what you call an unfettered right to bend the, uh, bind the trustees uh, or administrators or, or had a power of nomination to pay death benefits to say a, a specific person or to the state the, this would apply you know even if the benefits were ordinarily held under a discretionary trust if the member could actually direct any time where the death benefit was paid so whether or not this would apply again it's entirely down to the the, the scheme's documentation it might be possible to make a, a binding nomination without IHT consequences, um, whether it's irrevocable and happens in, in good health two years prior to death, or, or maybe where the trustees are bound to pay to a, say a restricted class, you know, broadly spouses, civil partners. Um, many schemes of nomination forms, uh, and these shouldn't really be confused with the power of nomination, as they are normally non-binding expressions of wish. Um, the next circle in the middle there. Uh, that's if the state is entitled to the death benefit, and that, that may be an example would be a, a retirement annuity contract where the death benefits uh, are not in trust, then that's going to be potentially subject to IST. And, and then lastly, in the top there, um, there, you know, if you've got continuing guarantee payments under an annuity payable to the state or, or, or rights at the annuitant's direction, then the market value of the, the remaining payments is going to be included in the state. And also for ISD purposes, if, if the lump sum is paid from a, a, a value protected pension, then if that amount's paid to the state as, a, as of a right or at the member's direction, uh, then the net amount of tax would be included in the state for, for ISD purposes. <clears throat> and if you click the, the, the slide on again, one, it's just the second part of this slide. Um, so we've got the two year rule to consider as well. And that relates to when information about the pension uh, uh, and, and, and the two years prior to death needs to be included in IHT form uh, IHT 409. Uh, so that starting at the top uh, one on the right hand side of the slide um, and, and moving down obviously that this this would relate to any sort of death benefit changes in the two years prior to death as that could be seen to deliberately trying to deprive the revenue by exploiting the pension tax system. And, and then you've also got your contributions in the two years prior to death if you were uh, knew you were in health at that time, and also transfers within two years of death will also need to be reported. So care obviously needs to be taken when considering large pension transfers if the client's elderly and has an IHT liability. Um, on to the next slide, please, Richard. Yeah, so from an admin point of view, yeah, you know, in terms of the admin process, you've, you've obviously got to notify the scheme. Uh, of the member's death, uh, the, the personal reps of the member also need to be involved in the, that information gathering stage as we talked about in a couple of slides ago, such as providing details of the will or any information that's relevant to help the scheme make a decision. Um, and the personal reps, they also need to liaise with uh, HMRC in terms of death benefits in excess of the lifetime allowance. Obviously at present, uh, HMRC, I think Les would have covered this at the the session of the week there, uh, another month there, sorry. Um, can you be agreed? And this is still filtering through that the scheme will pay it gross, uh, but HMRC um, will then be looking to tax the beneficiaries at their marginal rate for those that excess lumps. So the, the finer detail of that hasn't actually been confirmed yet. HMRC are still working through that, but again, uh, the, the personal reps are, are, are going to be involved in that. Um, 
they're also going to have to complete that IXT 409 form if there's been pension contributions or, or transfers within two years of death. So there, there is quite a bit of admin required before it gets to the to the to the point where the death benefits can be settled with beneficiaries. So they, they do need to be aware, um, you know, that it can be a bit of a long process when it comes to pension death benefits. Um, and on to the next slide. Um, in fact, you could probably just click this one twice, actually. Um, this is one that comes up quite a lot, and, and I think it's quite an important one because you, you may have had it before, or, or, or certainly you, I would expect you might come across it at some point. And that's where um, you've got the scheme have used their discretion uh, to to pay a, a lump sum to a minor beneficiary. Now, this is an example from section TSEM 1563, uh, uh, the, the Trust Settlement and States Manual, and it's example two. It's basically explaining that when a scheme uses their discretion to name a minor child as a beneficiary, it creates a bare trust for that beneficiary. The problem is, is and from my sort of experience, and, and like I say, you might come across it from time to time, schemes quite often will settle that claim, with obviously either the the surviving parent of the child, if, if it was a parent that died, or, or 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 obviously the legal guardian, and quite often they'll just settle that claim directly, and there'll not be much in the way of correspondence, and and lay person obviously parent that the person that's received it, they might put it into a child savings account thinking it's for them, and it might not be until they speak to their financial advisor that they go, there's a hundred grand sitting in my child savings uh, my child's savings account, and the advisor's obviously going to be saying well. They're not 18 for 10 years, for example. You know, they're, they're, why are you sitting that on a low interest bearing account? We want to invest it. The dilemma you then have is that the, they don't have any sort of evidence that, of, of the fact that they're actually or should be holding that money on bear trust for the, 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 the minor beneficiary. And that, that becomes a problem. How do you then evidence to the investment provider that you're investing that money as trustee? We regularly get this question in the help desk, and it's often down to the fact that the scheme's not really been very forthcoming uh, with the terms. However, you will get some uh, schemes that will demand uh, that the, the, a formal trust deed is, is created. So that's the two bullet points on the right there. Uh, basically, I've, I've got an article I've done a couple of years ago. In fact, I'll, I'll just write in my note. I'll send it over to Richard. You might find it handy. But some schemes will... Um, Demand or not demand, but they'll, they'll ask for a formal trustee to be drafted before they'll release the payment. That's that's an ideal position because then the you know the parent or legal guardian's got a formal document, and it's not obviously then a problem then for them to then you know maybe apply say for a bond to invest that money until the kid reaches age 18. But there are many schemes that will just simply pay out and just confirming a letter that we're paying this to you for the minor beneficiary. It might not have any words explaining that, you know, we're actually paying it to you to hold on trust. And if that's the case, then obviously if they're looking to invest the money, which if it's a decent sum of money, they will, they will be looking to do that, I would expect. Then obviously I would say it's important to contact the scheme. Help, well, I would definitely say, try and get this information at the point the money's getting paid is get a letter from the scheme administrator to say that, you know, they're paying the money uh, to X, to which will be the guardian or parent, um, to hold on bear trust for Y, i.e. the beneficiary. Even a simple letter like that is generally going to be enough 
for an investment provider such as Prudential, uh, as an example, we would accept a letter for, say, a bond onshore or offshore. You would probably expect it to be offshore if, um, with the beneficiary being a, a non-taxpayer and, and they get the money 18. But that letter in itself would be enough evidence. So it's quite key to get that and try to get that at the distribution stage um, because otherwise if you're trying to get that information at a later date then it'll, it'll cause delays uh, I would say in getting the money invested so like I said, I'll send that article over to Richard um, you, you probably will come across that at some stage um, so yeah move on to the, the next slide uh, get the considerations for ISAs now so uh, from a tax perspective you know prior to the 6th of April 2018 the tax benefits of an ISA wrapper um, also ended on death. And that basically meant that any income and gains that arose from those assets during the administration period uh, were subject to income tax and CGT. But uh, post the 6th of April 2018, um, when the investor dies, the ISA is basically designated to what's called a, a continuing account of the deceased investor and, and, and will remain so basically until the earlier of you know, completion of the administration of the state or closure of the account um, uh, or otherwise the, the ISA provider will um, close it after three years and a day after the owner dies. Um, funds in the sort of continuing account of the deceased investor, they continue to benefit from the ISA tax advantages, so any interest gains, etc. Uh, are, are tax exempt. If it is a life assurance, um, uh, policy within an ISA, an example with that would be like a proof fund ISA. Um, they'll pay out on death of the investor, but the policy uh, still remains part of the ISA business until the claim has been made. Uh, if interest is, is uh, added to the ISA by the insurer, you know, perhaps a, de a delay in paying the claim, then the interest will be exempt and, and can be credited without a, a deduction of tax. But if the death proceeds are held outside of the deceased ISA pending the payment, then any interest paid by the insurer would or should have a basic rate tax deducted at that point. Um, yeah, on to the next slide here. And, and from a distribution point of view for the ISA, uh, you know, if you know if the investment was a like stocks and shares or if it was a, a life assurance ISA, you know, that's obviously going to be dictated by the terms of the deceased investor's will or, or, or the law of intestacy that the you know the ISA wrapper itself as a product is not actually inherited uh, by the um, the beneficiary themselves, but we do have the additional sorry, getting tongue-tied there. We do have an additional permitted subscription, and I'm going to use APS for short, as I obviously can't say it very well. Um, that was announced in 2014 and came into effect in April 2015, and it's available in respects of death on or after the 3rd of um, December 2014. So what is the APS itself? Well, um, if a deceased investor, uh, ISA investor, um, had a surviving spouse or civil partner, it provides them with the ability, the, the survivor, uh, to make increased contributions to their own ISA based on the value of the deceased ISA plan. That APS is separate to and independent of the, the surviving spouse's own 20,000 annual ISA allowance. Obviously, that's a current annual allowance. Um, the APS, it's often misunderstood to mean the beneficiary inherits the ISA, but they don't, you know, even though the spouse or the civil partner might actually inherit the investment funds underlying investments on death or receive the death benefit, 
through the terms of the state, that's a different matter. It, it doesn't mean those funds need to actually be used to, to fund the APS. They could use any funds to, to fund that APS, or they could obviously use the, the same funds if they wanted to. Um, in, in terms of eligibility, it's only available to a spouse or civil partner of the deceased, and they must have been living together at the date of death. They can't have been separated uh, under a court order, um, did the separation or under circumstances where the the marriage or, or civil partnership is broken down. Uh, in terms of the middle part of the slide here, in terms of claiming the APS, uh, that begins with an application to the ISA manager uh, chosen to accept the, the additional contribution. So the selected ISA manager, they'll uh, claim the APS on behalf of the surviving spouse by contacting the deceased ISA manager to obtain the appropriate values and in terms of the valuation uh, of the APS if the investor died on or after 6th of April 2014 uh, uh, sorry 6th of April um, don't know why I'm saying 2014 uh, it, the, it can either be the value of the deceased ISA at the date of death or at the point that ISA ceased to be a, a continuing account of the deceased investor um, on to the next slide um Got a question for you, Barry, if I can just yeah, jump, yeah. jump in a second. Uh, and it did have a great typo from Becky, which she, which she subsequently fixed. But on the whole issue about must have been living together, is an allowance made for the deceased person having been in a care home while the spouse yes, wasn't? Yes, in? yes, 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 it is actually. Let um, I me mean, write a note. I think I'm pretty sure that's in HMRC's is a manager guidance of um, 100, um, 99%. It's actually in there. So I'll find a little link to that and Ping that to you, yeah, but, but yeah, that that that's that's okay if if they've been taken into care. Yep. Thanks. Um, in terms of contributions, uh, they can be made with the manager who held the deceased uh, ISA, uh, the survivor's own ISA allowance, uh, ISA sorry provider, uh, or another ISA manager if that ISA manager will accept, and and, and it can be also made in, in cash or inherited non ISA uh, assets. The APS it must be made um, or must be used with the deceased provider if the existing assets are to be transferred in specie. Uh, so the spouse or civil partner if they don't actually have a, a an ISA with that provider they would need to open one if they want to do an in specie contribution. Um, there's also time limits as you can see at the end of the slide here uh, for the APS. Um, if the contributions are to be made in specie. Uh, using those deceased ISA assets, uh, it can't be later than 180 days after the assets were distributed to the surviving uh, spouse by the personal rep. The APS, uh, uh, it can be used in one go or separate lump sums, but it must be made within uh, three years of the date of death or 180 days or within 180 days of the completion of the administration estate, whichever is, is, is the later. Um, in terms of the in-specie, you know that 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 will be dependent on the the ISA provider. Um, I know that Prudential's um, ISA doesn't currently uh, allow for in specie transfers, so it will really depend on on the ISA provider whether he can do that. Um, I just popped a question on the screen from Dylan there, Barry, about um, yeah. when do you count the ISA is closed? Is it the value at the date of death or at the point of transfer to the APS? For the APS, it, it, it would be the, the date of closure, so it'll be the earlier of whether that that's released at the closure or if it was, you know, you, you will have certain cases that that aren't administered in time, and it will be it will actually cease to become a, a continuing account at the the day, uh, three years and a day after. So 
it really depends on the circumstances. And one more quick question before we go on. Um, can you define beneficial ownership, please? Beneficial ownership, um, that, that would be, beneficial ownership would be if, if the person is entitled to the money from the estate. So that would be, you know, say, say this, uh, the, the spouse is the person who's beneficially entitled to them. So although you have your ISA provider, uh, sorry, your ISA with your underlying investment, say it's OIC fund, shares in OIC fund A, um, you know, when the ISA, when the ISA um, holder dies, those shares, um, who benefits from them? So although the spouse gets the APS for the value of those shares, they might not necessarily inherit them. So say, for example, um, those OIC shares, they specifically said have to go to their children, then the, the spouse wouldn't obviously be um, beneficially entitled to them. But, you know, if you've got a, a lot of clients might just be leaving everything to the surviving spouse on death. And obviously, once that they've become beneficial owner of those assets, the money's been, the, the ownership of the assets has been transferred to them, then then that's them beneficially owned by that individual. Right. Thank you, Barry. I've got some more questions coming. I'm going to save those because we've only got about 14, 15 minutes left. Um, so if oh, we don't get geez. time to do them today, yeah, yeah. I'll get Barry to, Barry to well, answer them afterwards. So um, I'm going to crack yeah, them. Anyway. By all means, you can pass them on. So yeah, on to personal loan bonds now. So uh, in terms of the sort of tax and distribution for personal loan bonds, it comes down to ownership. So, Starting on the left of this slide here, uh, if the bond's owned by an individual, then on their death, the bond will form part of their estate if there's a surviving life assured, uh, or if it was an offshore bond, capital redemption basis, uh, or, or the proceeds are, will be basically paid to their estate if they were the last surviving life assured. Um, who benefits is going to depend on the terms of the will or the laws of intestacy. You know, initially, the bond provider will update the ownership records to show the personal reps are owners uh, on receipt of grant of probate or, or letters of administration, etc., until a claim is made. Um, the personal rep of the state, they're generally going to require probate to claim the proceeds. A bit we've kind of touched on that already. Um, but, they, you know, as I said, they might have a, a simplified bereavement process to get a, a smaller claim value paid out early. If, on the right-hand side of the screen here, uh, if it's jointly owned, then on first death, the survivor automatically becomes the sole owner due to the joint tenancy rule. So if there's a surviving owner uh, and there, there's no death claim uh, because it was set up on a joint life assured basis, and that, that's, um, uh, well, if you, if you set it up on a, a joint, joint ownership, joint life first death basis, that would be pretty uncommon. It's usually joint life, joint second death basis. So obviously if there's a surviving life assured, there's not going to be an immediate chargeable event. And I guess kind of one key point on for this slide is that although we're looking at the position at the point of death in this sort of session, I think it's really important when you're setting up a bond to think about these scenarios. You know, do you want the owner's death to be triggering a, a chargeable event? You know, are they a higher rate taxpayer? Are there you know, proposed estate beneficiaries, are they going to be in a lower tax bracket if that's the case? Then having, you know, a younger life assured on there on the bond means that at least the personal representatives would be able to, um, you know, delay paying it, maybe transfer the liability over to the, the estate beneficiaries and get them to encash the bond at their marginal rate rather than it being assessed against the owner. 
that's not to say that it, it, it should always be like that. You'll probably be familiar with bonds being set up in that, that way. Um, but, it, you know, sometimes it's not a bad idea to have the bond end on the owner's death because they might actually be in a lower tax bracket than the, the ultimate beneficiary. So it, it, although it's, today's session is death, it's a, I think it's a very important thing to think about at the, at the setup of the bond itself. Um, move on to the next slide. I think just bring this one, if I yeah, bring that just, Go another two clicks, just bring that one up and fill um, another one more click, actually. Yeah. Uh, with, with that one, obviously, the, this is just how you determine how a bond is, who's liable for the tax on the bond. The, the first one's pretty much irrelevant because obviously it's um, uh, the top one, I should say, because if the owner's alive, it's assessed against them, but we're talking about death. But if they're, if, you know, if they're not alive, you know, the, the key question is, did their uh, death cause the chargeable event? If they are the you know single owner sole life assured, their death will trigger the chargeable event. If it was jointly owned, uh, uh, sorry, single owned but jointly life assured, it wouldn't. So if it is assessed against them because they're the sole life assured, uh, the uh, the game's going to be assessed on them, and therefore top slicing relief might apply. Um, if that's not the case, have the uh, personal reps cashed in the bond, and if that's the case, the personal reps are going to be liable for the bond. They can't top slice. The gain is essentially going to then be treated as a state income, um, and, and which means that top slicing relief is not going to be available to the, the beneficiary either. Um, so again, come back to that thing about setting up the bond so it doesn't end on the, the owner's death. You know, if you want the option to assign it instead to avoid uh, uh, or to help try and mitigate the tax liability, um, then that might be the better thing to do. So, so just to bring that to, to life a little bit, um, on the next slide, I've got an example of Mary. Uh, uh, Mary's father died recently. Uh, Ted was widowed. Uh, she's the only person inheriting all of his estate. Uh, that includes an onshore bond that's continued, as Ted had added Mary as a life assured when he set it up. Now, the executives are wondering you know, whether to cash in the bond or assign it to Mary. Um, it's currently shown again is 69000 and a slice of 11500 because it's been in force for six years. Mary's got a salary of of, of thirty thousand pounds and no other income. So what what should um, Mary do in this particular scenario? Put back up on the screen. Yeah, hello, Barry. No, no, hi. There we go. <laughs> uh, so my computer seems to be working. Now. Is it cooled down? It seems to have. Uh, so in this scenario, what what should she do? Should she? Um, Sorry, should the executors surrender that bond and then distribute the net proceeds, or should they look to assign it to Mary? So, if you move on to the next slide, so basically, if personal reps and cash the bond, um, it becomes a state uh, comprised in the state and, and subject to a state income. So, if you move, actually, just click two, I think, off the top of my head. Yeah, um, so with that, obviously, if the personal reps and cash they're liable to tax on the gain. At a basic rate, um, the onshore tax credit that will still apply. But then, when they then distribute the proceeds to the the beneficiary, um, they they are going to be subject to marginal rate uh, and are treated as receiving a state income rather than a bond gain. So, for example, if if it was a fifty thousand pounds bond gain, um, then obviously the personal reps cash that in, they would pay tax at basic rate. If it's onshore, that's treated as paid. But when they pass it over to the beneficiary, 
the beneficiary would be treated as having £50,000 of estate income. They wouldn't be treated as having a bond gain. And that, that's what they would um, uh, describe or, or tell them about when they fill out their form R185. So if, let's have a look at it from Mary's perspective. If we move on to the next slide, um, how are we for time? Ten minutes. So I'll not run through all the numbers, but this you might be familiar with our tax relief model that is essentially I've run the numbers through there just to double check. But as you can see, in fact, if you click again, one I've just obviously we've got the taxation of the person, the our salary at the top there, but now I've isolated that and shown the bond gain. So you can see the first five hundred, the bond gains taxed at the PSA. You've then got the rest there uh, to sort of nineteen. 1,770 at 20%, the tax on that, and then the tax on the rest at 40%. So you've got that liability of 23,446. So you've got a tax credit for the onshore basic rate tax paid is 13,800. The top slice of relief in the calculation on that, I've not got that up on the slide, but that would equate to 9,646. So when you deduct um, your 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 tax reducers at step six of your income tax computation, that obviously negates any further tax for Mary if the bond is assigned to her, because you can see at the very bottom there, our tax liability remains at 3,486, which is essentially the tax on her income. If we move it one further uh, uh, here, this is where um, the position if the executor's actually cashed in the bond. So if you run through the numbers there, obviously she's got a salary being taxed, but then the rest of that, that full gain is then being treated as a state income. And as you can see at the end of what would be step five of the income tax computation, the tax bill is 27,032. However, she still gets that basic rate tax credit, which means that um, it is a step reducer at step six, a tax reducer at step six. So you can see the liability when you deduct that. The total liability would be 13,232 compared to it being just 3,486 if she assigned it. So as you can see, the, the tax liability stays the same. The, the, in this particular scenario, you would be looking to assign the bond to the, the, the beneficiary rather than the executors. The key thing, if you click one more, I think it should be coming up as the key point is that Mary wouldn't be able to top slice again. So she's going to have that higher rate tax liability. So now there's no one size fits all solution. It's really going to depend on the beneficiary circumstances. But, you know, having that ability to control the tax point, having a younger life assured gives the executors the ability to make a decision. Don't get me wrong, in some circumstances, you might have a bond that's got 20 segments. There's 13 beneficiaries. They've all got an equal split. It's not going to work. You might just have to cash it in. Uh, but obviously, there's some sort of key tax planning that can be done. Um, and again, going back to the start of bond, uh, the set up of the bond, if you know who the beneficiaries are and is unequal, you could set up the bond with a number of segments so that you can divide it equally between the beneficiaries or in a relevant proportion. So... Yep, that's, so that's that bit covered in in terms of the charitable event position. Uh, if we move on to the next slide. Barry, I'm, I'm going to make a suggestion, actually, that um, the next bit is about what happens with bonds that, that are in trust. And that, yep. that's quite a chunky section. And I really would like to do that justice. So what I'm going to suggest is we've only got five minutes left. Um, how about if you and I just record a, a short video um, at a later time, just go through the trust bits, because I've got a few questions. Of this All right, yeah, yeah, as well. sure. 
And then we can pop that up on our website because I, I really don't want to rush that bit. And we've had some really good questions. And I've taken you off a bit of a tangent, I'm afraid. So no, that's okay. So <laughs> if that's all right with you, um, yep. then, then we'll do it. Hopefully that's okay with everybody wash, watching, washing, uh, watching, because that, that really does need a little bit of time. Um, so I do have to apologise. I am working from a garage. So as you can see, I've got some plasterboard <laughs> and stuff and work to still get finished. But <laughs> there you go. Oh, it's lovely to see you again. So you came, yeah, came yeah. good at the end. You, you gave it an ice cream, didn't you? It's that? weird because so. um, it seems to feel cooler, but I don't feel cooler. It's getting quite hot in here. <laughs> That's strange. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but that was brilliant. So yeah, we'll, we'll as I said, we'll record a, a video and I'll, I'll sort that out with Barry afterwards, just going through the, the trust situation because there is quite a lot to cover in that one. And, and we can, um, I, I can fire the questions at you. I've had sent in already on that one, but we'll, we'll leave yeah. it for there for now. So Barry, thank you very much for that. Um, you, you did um, everyone from the Energy Technical Team proud there. It was great to have you at your first assembly. Sure. Um, we'll pop a link in the chat room now, uh, which will take you off to Energy's website where you can download some CPD, you can get copies of the slides and there's links to all sorts of other resources as well. Barry's mentioned as we went along some other um, resources and links he's going to send through to us. So we'll make sure they're available um, once we finish today and pop those on there. Um, don't forget you can book uh, for the big day out uh, on our website now and also the assembly in the middle, which is happening in Warwick in November. If you want to keep the conversation going, then go on to the Big Tent on our website and you can join in there. Um, and thank you very much for your questions and top ice cream suggestions in the chat room as well. That was very good. Um, so I'm going to just finish by saying a massive thank you to M&G for supporting the assembly again this year and to Barry for putting a great slide deck together and sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us there. Um, we're going to say goodbye now, but I'm going to stay on for an after show because we want to test our technology to see if the abrupt ending happens or not. So um, you can stay and watch me look a bit silly if you want to. But um, Barry and I are going to say goodbye for now. So Barry, thank you very much. And we'll see you all again very soon. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.